Did you miss something today because you were looking at your phone, something somebody said, something wonderful that your child did and I'll never do again? The sound of an oncoming vehicle, perhaps? If you own a phone and you didn't do it today, well, I'm going to say there's a 100% chance that at some point in the last 48 hours, you would have answered yes to that question. I answered yes to it in the last 10 minutes. However, much like global warming, the end user, you, me, often feel guilt around our phone use or our phone addiction. Yet much like global warming, that is because there is a deliberate play by the people who not only create these devices, but also the apps that run on them The argument being that we are choosing to consume their products, so we are responsible for the consequences. It's a classic. They didn't didn't invent it. In fact, where it came from is pretty gnarly. My guest today is here to tell you that argument, it's bullshit, and it's time to fight back. Because we're not just missing what somebody said. We're losing a lot more about what makes us human and what things make our society work. The fire has definitely started. The alarm has been raised, but the firefighters still aren't coming. There's no lawyers rushing to regulate these gargantuan companies, at least not as quickly as we need them to. My guest is Gaia Bernstein today. She's written an extraordinary book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. It's a great read, and she offers some excellent tools to deal with managing the device that you're listening to me on right now, this device we need to engage so we can be in modern society and engage with modern society, but how to do that and maintain our humanity. It's a great conversation. There's a lot to take away from it. But first, some ads. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
In no way are we going back to a screenless, unconnected world. This is not going to happen. I mean, the ability to talk to your doctor or to your kids when you're away, these things are great and they should stay in all this information we have. The thing is, because we never made a conscious decision, we never really decide how this balance between online and offline life should look like. And we sort of lack in the imagination because we never pause to think. And one of the main argument I'm making is that by applying pressure on tech companies to redesign their products, we could have products which are not designed to addict us. And it's taking out these addictive elements, applying pressure on this business model. If the business model would not have been to have a stay online for as long as possible, we might have very different technologies, which would have more of the good but less of the bad. That is Professor Gaia Bernstein. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. G'day. Thanks for listening. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast that's here three times a week, here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. We've been having conversations with people since 2013 and making it better than yesterday by having those conversations every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. Uh, On Friday, in fact, just a couple of days back, I um, did a whole show about getting nominated for a gold Logie, which in Australia is a big fucking deal. It's a big TV award. And um, I guess I've made a very conscious decision that this is the moment where the person you're hearing here and have been hearing here for the last 10 years, three times a week, is going to show up on television. And so if you would like these kind of conversations that we have three times a week to get more traction, to reach more people, to help more people, vote. That's the way to do it tvweeklogies.com.au I think that's what it is or tvweeklogieawards.com I'll put the link in the show notes there you go takes about a minute there's drop down menus throw one in for Costa while you're at it let me tell you about my guest today Professor Gaia Bernstein is an expert in privacy and policy law and is co-director of Gibbons Institute of Law and Science and Technology it's a very fancy sounding place but because she's a very fancy person she's a professor for goodness sake Gaia's latest book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies, explores device addiction and what it's doing to us, to you, to me. Rather than blaming the user, the end user, you and I, the book really shatters the illusion that we autonomously choose how to spend our time online. And it shifts, very convincingly, shifts the moral moral responsibility and accountability for solutions to the corporations that make these devices and make this software. During lessons from the tobacco and the food industries, uh, she really demonstrates why government regulation is going to be necessary to curb addiction to technology. So if you're concerned about your screen time or the screen time of someone you love, let alone what it's doing to your children, this episode is epic. There's lots to take away from it. I'd love to know your thoughts. Send us your email at gmail.com. You know, in fact, shoot a photo of what you're looking at while you listen. I always love that. 
it's nice to see. So I got sent some great photos of people uh, riding their bicycles, walking their dogs and riding their bicycles, but inside the house. Love a good Zwifting photo. Thanks, man. Enjoy this conversation with Gaia Bernstein. Good morning, Gaia, or good evening. How are you today? I'm good. It's good evening here in New York. I'm so grateful we could speak today. It's uh, an extraordinarily important thing to talk about. I'm nearly 50, Gaia, so I remember a time before the cultural bifurcation that we live in now. You know, I remember us going in Australia, going from three channels to four channels to five to now there's like four people in my city that have a phone, a cell phone, and then a month later there was eight, and then a month later it just went from there, double, double, double. And then I think I was 20 when I got my first, uh, GSM phone that couldn't even text back then. Yeah, um, I remember that. And then slowly over time, you know, so I, I I have borne witness to my brain, my own brain before, during, and now after extraordinary stimulus exposure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, we have uh, two kids in our house. We have one who's nearly who's just turned nineteen, and the other one who's nearly four, and yeah, they're both digital natives and reading your book is terrifying, but also full of hope because you wonderfully, with enormous amounts of robust research, back up what a lot of a lot of my and many parents and, you know, other people's worries are around screen time. And to say that's an epidemic, people might think it's hyperbole, but is it really an epidemic, Kyle? I think it's beyond an epidemic. I think it's been going on for so long. It's become a reality. And uh, that is the big problem. It's not something that came and we're paying attention to it. And now we are going to deal with it. We did not notice what was happening for so long. And that's an interesting thing that you bring up in the book in that we, we never really consented to being manipulated People may think that when they use their phones, they're not being manipulated. What would you say to that? I would say that they are manipulated, but it's invisible. And it's so manipulative that even people like I who know about it, I tend to forget and overuse my phone because tech companies have designed their products, the phones or the apps in a way that makes us stay online for much longer than we intended to. But we don't see it and we don't know why when we pick up our phones to check our emails, we end up staying there for another half an hour doing nothing, basically. And it's not by accident that this is how our phones have captured us, is it? No, it's not. It's basically a business model. Uh, The whole internet economy is based on this business model, which has two resources. One is our data, which is privacy and things people have been talking about for longer now. And the other is our time. So basically, in order to collect our data, uh, tech companies need to keep us online for as long as possible. And then they, the goal is to target advertising at us using this data. So again, they want us online for as long as possible so they, we can see the advertising and they can sell products through the advertising because we have to remember that everything is free. Gmail is free. Facebook is free. So this is the way they make money. We pay, we don't pay with money, we pay with our time and our data. 
Uh, and by data, you mean not only where we are in the world, which is our physical location, which uh, is previously to 2007 was extraordinarily private and something we would never tell a stranger, but also what we're looking at. And sometimes every single word we speak out of our mouths because uh, <laughs> our microphones stay open because we've given them permissions and our phones listen to us. Right, right. They collect vast amounts of data in order to give us this very, very targeted advertising. If you go on Facebook, the kind of advertising you would get is very different from the advertising I would get. For people who are, who are listening, they, they kind of know that they're, they're in it. And even you, someone who knows all about this stuff, you're a professor, you like you practice law, you, you know all about this. Like hearing you saying, even I spend more time on my phone than I, I want to, how can any of us have any hope, Kaya? Well, I think we have been, the, the problem is there's been lack of awareness. I think since 2017, 18, there's been much more awareness. There's been reports from Silicon Valley about how tech companies manipulate us. And unfortunately, at that point, the pandemic hit and everybody went on screens. But I think at this point, there's enough awareness. And the main thing I'm trying to say, we tend to blame ourselves. So we say, you know, I spend too much time on my phone. My kids spend too much time playing games. And we're so focused on figuring out how to control ourselves that we are not doing what really needs to be done is taking the fight to the public sphere because things will not change until technology companies change the way they design their products. And there are ways to make movement, but they're not by fighting at home. And this is the thing that I found fascinating reading in your book is the parallels that I could see. You draw it often to um, smoking and the, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the, the fights against smoking regulation from the tobacco industry, but as well, the in in many ways, the, uh, the structured and systemic blaming of the individual for global warming by fossil fuel companies. I believe it was BP who paid a PR agency to come up with the words carbon footprint. So therefore, it's the end user who's the one that's responsible for killing the planet. It's not us. Oh, no. The people that are, you know, spewing squillions of tons a day of carbon monoxide and methane into the air. And by putting it on the end user, we walk around with this guilt like, oh, it must be my fault. Oh, my kid can't look up from her phone. Oh, I'm a terrible parent. But that's not really it, is it? No, I think this is basically the tech companies have adopted a strategy that's not innovative at all. Basically, throughout history, companies, big industries, whatever, uh, it was found out they were actually harming their consumers. The first argument they made is, you know, you chose to use our product, so you're responsible. So with tobacco companies, when smokers went to courts to sue the tobacco companies, they, tobacco companies argued in court that the smokers chose to smoke and therefore they're responsible for lung cancer and their impending death. And they won for decades. It is, it's a very successful strategy. Same with junk food. Exactly the same thing happened when a group of teens sued McDonald's here in New York for because they were sick with diabetes and they were obese. 
And McDonald's did the same thing. They argued, well, nobody forced you to eat at McDonald's. Nobody forced you to supersize. And again, they won because the court said, you know, the teens are responsible. So the tech companies adopted this idea. But I think what's interesting is they took it one step forward because they're not just blaming. Game makers actually did blame, you know, parents and the kids for choosing to play. But they also gave us these tools, what they call digital well-being tools. So the moment the truth started coming out that they're addicting us on purpose, they came up with screen time. If you have an iPhone, you can see how much time you spend on your phone. You can even limit how much time you spend on apps. Uh, you can On Instagram, you could get notifications. You can set up notifications for your kids. But these tools were not meant to succeed because they never eliminate the really addictive features. They basically, the whole purpose of this is to make us feel we've given you tools. It's under your control. If you chose not to use them, it's your fault. So I, I think that that is what's so incredible. And that's what's also making so many people blame themselves. I don't know if you saw my face when you were talking about the self-limiting tools, and I've spoken on this podcast many times. I think I have tried three separate elimination strategies on my phone. I've lost count of how many times I've deleted Instagram from my phone. I have two separate apps on there right now that are supposed to block me from using it. I went through a whole phase of giving my wife my screen time passcode, like a 10-year-old boy, and it still doesn't work. And I'm 13 years sober. I know how addiction works and I can't yeah. stop fucking using it. So why why is it like this? Well, why is it like this? I think that there that, are that two things operating here. First of all, it's the nature of screens. It's like if you want to abstain from smoking or alcohol, you can not go to a bar, you can not order alcohol, you cannot keep alcohol in your home, or you cannot buy cigarettes. But with screens, you cannot avoid them because that's part of life. So it's very hard to get away. You need a phone and you need to be on your computer or your iPad. The second thing is what the tech companies did was they took our most vulnerable parts and they designed they took these principles and they made designs to fit them. So I'll give an example. So there was an ex famous experiment about soup. Uh, one group was given a bowl of soup and they ate the soup. Another uh, group was given a bowl of soup which had no bottom. So they ate 70% more. Oh, my goodness. They had no stopping cues. All right. So the, the soup had like some sort of hole in the bottom and they just kind of pumped more soup into it. Right. Wow. And that's exactly what's happening online they took away our stopping cues so wow. if you think about the infinite scroll yeah on uh, twitter or instagram or facebook there's never an end to a page just keep going and going and going and that's why you spend so much time online and this is just one example out of many of what they did and so we we might think that we have a choice to pick up our phone we might think we have a choice of when we do and don't scroll why is that not true? So and what's so confusing about it is that sometimes we can manage. So we think we have a choice and you know me, I'm a professor. So if I have to prepare a class, or I have to prepare a conference uh, talk, I am going to be able not to waste my time online, which gives me the sense that I have a choice while I actually don't. 
because it's there's something so mindless about it. So unless you really, really are under time pressure, you are just you won't even notice how you start scrolling. And on top of that, there's they use this uh, strategy called intermittent reward model. So that's something that's been used for years with slot machines. Because you know you see people pulling the slot machine handle, so they keep pulling and pulling. Why do they do that? Because once in a while they get money. Once in a while, when you get the rewards on an irregular basis, you, your brain uh, releases more of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is responsible for pleasure. So all over the internet, we get um, rewards on an intermittent basis, whether it's comments or likes. You know, sometimes I post something on Facebook and nobody responds. Sometimes I get lots of likes and I get lots of comments. And I don't even know why certain things do and certain things don't. And that's exactly the point. And it's everywhere. You go on Tinder and you swipe. Sometimes you get a match and sometimes you don't. And even, you know, even emails, you know, you keep getting notifications. You don't know if it's an important email. So you keep checking and there's this dopamine burst every time you get a notification. So it's it's so difficult if you just, you're restless and you don't know what to do. The first thing you do is go and check your email, your text, your Facebook. It's um it's so difficult to not see this as sinister, Gaia. Um, you write a, in your book about abusive design and those two words together just floor me. I've, I've, I lived in America for 10 years. I spent time in San Francisco. Like I was pitching an app. I, I was trying to do the whole thing, right? I've met these people. I've met these coders. I've, I've met these people. And in Stanford University in um, San Francisco, just out of San Francisco, there is a, a lab, the Persuasive Design Lab. And a, a, a Dr. BJ Fogg uh, worked there. Yeah. And it was basically describing, teaching people exactly how to do what you do, and and then brilliantly in a very kind of American. Well, we're just we're just providing the details of how to build a bomb. It's up to you whether you want to use it or not. And of course, these guys went and and you know pissed off and made you know Farmville or whatever you know. And it's insidious, and it hurts me that people would do that. Right, and I think it's even more confusing because. These guys for decades portray themselves as the good guys. I mean, Google's motto was do no evil. And Facebook was there to connect the world. And unlike other corporations for history, they always talked about how they're there to make the world better. And combining that with the fact that somehow we believe that, you know, technology will increase human welfare, will bring progress. It's hard to believe that actually more technology could do something like that. And I think now, actually, with ChatGPT coming out, people are realizing for the first time that maybe technology, more technology is not always better, especially information technology. I think some technologies we knew were not great. Tell, tell me about this, you know, the idea of ab abusive design. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think the idea of abusive design, it's basically that you are being manipulated in a covert way, that you, you, you're losing your autonomy, you're no longer making your own decisions. So what happened to us, you know, of course, you, we made a decision to, you know, download Facebook or to download a game, we make small decisions. 
But we didn't realize that while doing that, we were actually making a huge decision over how we spend our time, which is our most important resource. People, adults spend five hours on their time alone. I doubt if people were asked around 2009 when this started spiraling out of control, whether they wanted to spend five hours on their phone. And I'm sure they would say no. But they never really realized they were making this decision because when I started, you know, I started texting on my way to work and started answering emails and downloading Facebook, I did not realize that within a couple of months, I will not even look up from my phone and I, somebody could be sitting next to me on the, on the train, a colleague, a student, I would not see them. I never thought this is where this will go. None of us did. So that's what manipulative design does to you, abusive, abusive design. It manipulates you to make decisions you would have not done if you had realized what decision you were making. For for me, who's, as I said, I'm, I'm nearly 50. For me, I, I knew I was the frog and I knew I was jumping in the frying pan and I knew the water was getting warmer. And But every time the water got a little bit warmer, it felt just... Just a, just comfortable enough to be like, oh yeah, but I'll stay. The view's nice, you know, <laughs> and, you know, because the utility of what was being offered to me, as you mentioned, you know, things like Gmail free. I use Gmail. The utility was so great, I didn't mind giving away what I was giving away. You know, I have since put safeguards in my privacy around, you know, with VPNs and such. Um, but when I see, you know, the younger people in my life, they just have no idea what they're giving away because they've never known to not give it away. Right. They don't know a different world and also the impact on them. The data that's basically, uh, I look at the book, last two or three years, the studies, if before there was a debate about the harms, I think for children, there's no doubt there's a public health crisis at this point. Uh, impact... We talk about, uh, in, your, in your book, you, you write about um, the way that uh, children's brains are affected by, by screen time and, and using these apps that are, are designed to, you know, make the brain work in particular ways and, and robbing the child uh, of the ability to, to, to make a choice. You know, we know a lot about what sugar does to kids. We know what smoking does to kids. We know what lack of enough calories or alcohol abuse of the mother does to kids. You know, we know about, we know, you know, we know what alcohol does to a kid's brain, right? If they, you know, prefrontal cortex, cortex doesn't finish developing until 25. What does the science tell us about what happens to a child's brain uh, for, you know, using uh, screens? So I think at first we had psychology studies who just looked at the impact on cognitive development and they saw that people who were exposed to more screens uh, had lower uh, test results and the learning and ability to read was affected. And uh, the early studies were done on kids who were addicted to gaming and many of them qualified to clinically being actually be clinically addicted to wow. a point that they would drop out of school oh and would be unable to function despite all these bad consequences happening to them, they wouldn't get off. And so two interesting studies when you look at uh, the images. So for cognitive development, the brain imaging studies show that if you look at the brains of kids who were um, exposed to excessive screen time, 
um, above the American Pediatric Association recommendations, which compared to the control group, you can see that their brains look different in the areas which are responsible to, for cognitive development. And the differences are related to um, white matter areas, which are related to speed of transmitting information. And this is correlated to inferior results in cognitive testing. Um, for kids who were playing games, it was interesting. They saw that the games, the brains look similar to the brains of uh, adults who were addicted to gambling, which is another behavioral addiction. So then there's more and more brain scanning studies coming out every day now, which is backing the already very concerning um, findings about mental health, cognitive development and other things. And emotionally, what's the, what's the difference between a, a child that is using screens excessively or... You know, I'm, I'm assuming, like the recent studies around alcohol, oh, the safe amount of alcohol to drink? None. I'm assuming that that's a similar amount of screen time. What What's the emotional uh, impact of a child in their home or at school who, who has too much screen time or is, is showing signs okay. of too much screen time? Okay, so of course, it's all statistical. You know, some kids will not be affected as much as others, mm. uh, but the statistics show that from around 2010, there's been a huge increase and in the United States, at least, where many of the studies were done, in suicide rates, oh. uh, anxiety, and depression. And at first, it was unclear what exactly was the cause, because, of course, uh, screens and social networks were uh, a big, big thing that was uh, investigated, but there were other potential issues, maybe overparenting, parents overbearing, not let, giving the kids enough autonomy. But after enough data has been uh, collected, especially, as I said, over the last two or three years, it's very clear that it's related to uh, screen time, especially social networks, and especially for girls. And so it's it's the study, the results are granular and alarming at the same time. The Anyone that's sat next to, uh, you've got three children. I've got, yeah. I've got two, and you know, so I'm, I've been around teenagers for a number of years now, you know, because they're in a house, and you'd sit down and you watch, and, you know, a kid will open their phone, and they will open Snapchat, and they will check on a map, to see where everybody is, and I remember just the other day I watched one of these kids who was around here do it three times in 10 minutes, this person's sitting in a room full of their friends. <laughs> right. And that's exactly some of the studies show the impact on, if, even if you don't qualify for anxiety, depression, social disconnection, loneliness, there are some studies which related to uh, happiness studies that we've always known that people are happier when they have you know, long-term relationships. But these studies also show that happiness is related to very a short interaction, just talking to somebody in the street, you know, instead of walking, which I, I too often do, you know, with my uh, earphones and my phone, if I would just walk around and smile at people, I'm likely to feel much better. And the thing is, when kids are staying home and on the, with their phones and they're not hanging out with other kids, and the, this has gone, the studies show that it's gone down by 50% uh, in the last 15 years or so, they're not getting these moments which actually give them a feeling of pleasure and happiness. Mm. So there's a general feeling of 
um, discontent, loneliness, lack of connection. I guess I guess the other thing that really bothers me, and I saw it quite early, is that um, you know the punishment. Oh, take your phone away. It would be so horrible to do because this technology. Um, what's her name? Um, Sherry Turkle. The idea that you know the technology has kind of put itself. It's the architect of our intimacy. Is, is the word that she used? Beautiful. Uh, it, it is. It is. It's between you and I right now. You know, it is the thing that is, uh, you know, the way that I connect with the people I love in my life is all through the same device I don't want to use for other things. You know, it's the way that I tell people I love them. It's the way I talk to my doctor. It's the way that I FaceTime my kids when I'm away. You know, it is this, it's put itself between me and the most important things in my life. And there's nothing I could do about it. Well, I think this is a very important point because in no way are we going back to a screenless, unconnected world. This is yeah. not going to happen. No. I mean, the ability to talk to your doctor or to your kids when you're away, these things are great and they should stay in all this information we have. The thing is, because we never made a conscious decision, we never really decide how this balance between online and offline life should look like. And we sort of lacking the imagination because we never pause to think. And one of the main argument I'm making is that by applying pressure on tech companies to redesign their products, we could have products which are not designed to addict us. And it's taking out these addictive elements, applying pressure on this business model. If the business model would not have been to have a stay online for as long as possible, we might have very different technologies, which would have more of the good but less of the bad. The uh, the the profit that is driving this our attention is is astonishing, and you know, trying trying to decouple the profit model from our attention sucking is it's 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 a steep slope. But I, I, I want to get to that because I keep I keep hearing what you're talking about and you know, what we're discussing. And as I said, I've been I've been sober so for a while now, and so I'm I'm aware of the different you know forms of addiction and. This one, it really kind of strikes me as it's a little similar to food addiction in that the abstinence model just doesn't work. You need food. There are people who are hopelessly addicted to binge eating, hopelessly addicted to food, and watching people with food addiction try to eat a meal, is it's tough to see the things they have to do to stop themselves from just gorging to the point of wanting to vomit. But it's a really hard one, food addiction. And that's that's the kind of like the analog that I would say for me is like that's kind of how I might be able to put this into my brain uh, of how we might be able to deal with this. So I think the analogy to food is very useful here because, you know, food is like technology. It's a mixture of good and bad. We need food to subsist. On the other hand, you know, I've never seen anybody gorging on carrots, for example. So yes. when you, and junk food, you know, food companies do exactly the same thing like what technology companies do. Oh, I've read do. Fast Food Nation. I've, I, I know all about that lab. <laughs> right. And they make it impossible for us to really know what's in the products. We try yeah. to eat food that's not processed and good for us, and they manage it to hide it so we won't even know and we will keep eating thinking we're eating baked chips and this is better we don't know why we just had ate a whole bag so 
I think there's a similar there's a similar conflict going on, and it, it's it is as complicated because it's it's hard to separate. We talked about tobacco earlier and the fast food industry and and the arguments that they use to shut down the uh, the legal claims against them. Eventually, I took a good couple of decades, but eventually the tobacco companies started to to lose, um, and then the vaping shows up, and we start again. But what lessons can we learn from those battles when it comes to what clearly needs to happen, which is an upstream solution, which is legislation? What can we learn about what happened with tobacco and, and fast food? So I think there are lots of things we can learn. I'll just give a few examples. So first of all, where does this argument of self-choice and self-responsibility start failing? So it starts failing uh, when there's evidence of intent to addict. And that's what happened with the tobacco lawsuits. For decades, tobacco companies won. And then evidence finally came out from tobacco companies that uh, they were in purpose, the new nicotine was addictive, they were manipulating it to addict smokers. They started losing the battles. And smokers started winning. And so that's, we already have this evidence for technology. Francis Hogan, who worked for Facebook, testified to the U.S. Congress uh, describing exactly how Facebook that owns Instagram knew that kids, especially girls, were affected, their mental health were deteriorating. They knew it was related to how much time they spent online, and they decided to ignore it because their profits were dependent on the algorithms that made that happen. So... That's an important thing to know that we're already at the stage that we have the information. Yeah. The second thing is children, because we don't think about children as choice makers. We think that we make the choices for them and that we don't think of them as responsible. So it's easier for us to make paternalistic choices for them. And so, for example, kids cannot buy cigarettes. Adults can still buy cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of talk now about... Uh, limiting kids from going on social networks and it's easier for regulators to make these decisions for children because children should be protected mm -hmm. we saw this with food as well uh, there's a requirement here that uh, schools have to um, weigh kids and to send their bmi to parents to fight obesity so this is something that would never be done to adults. You would never go to work and have to weigh yourself. No. So, so I think children, and the good thing about this, because if things start children changing for children, there are some bills that are trying to uh, outlaw addictive features for children. It's very complicated to just outlaw it for children. You can see how the pressure could change things for all of us. And I think that's important. Do we need to find evidence that this, the loop that you mentioned earlier, the um, trigger action reward investment hook, then we just go around, around, around. Is, is it so proving evidence that this is written into the coding and like we can show that the likes are manipulated to not be regular? Like how do you pr even prove this stuff? Well, I think at this point, there have been so many whistleblowers coming from different companies in Silicon Valley describing what happened. Mm -hmm. And there are internal documents that were leaked describing what happened. So I don't think 
That's the problem. The problem is that as long as we have the business model, even if we show that certain certain things like the infinite scroll or likes or comments are a problem, and even if things are changed there, as long as the business model is to keep us online for as long as possible, I'm sure tech companies will innovate with new things that mm. at first we won't even know because these these things are invisible. Yeah, but that, is it like putting filters on cigarettes? Like, I'm old. I remember, <laughs> hey, now right. filtered. Like, fuck off, mate. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was a thing, you know, that that would be something to compare it to. It's like, well, it's, it's got a filter on it. Off you pop. There you go. You'll be fine. 25 milligrams of tar. Get in. Right. And that, that's screen time is the filter. When uh, Facebook opened the uh, privacy cafes in London, that was like the filter. They were helping people set the, put their privacy settings in place. Just a moment away from Gaia to say thank you for listening. Love to know what you're doing when you're listening. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's my email address. It's uh, pretty easy. And uh, look, while you're online, you can throw a vote my way. TV Week Logies. Oh, I think that's it. I should really know this. It's in the show notes. I'll get Andy to put it in the show notes. Just however you were listening to this right now, there'll be some show notes. We'll put the link there. It takes about a minute. But if you'd like more people to hear the kind of conversations we have, if a conversation on this podcast has helped you at some point in the last 10 years, uh, do us that kindness and show that um, support. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to get a bit more ears into this podcast and help some more people like the way that hopefully this helps you. This this podcast helps me. Goodness gracious, this podcast helps me. Um, Yeah, so you can vote there. It's in in the show notes. We're back with Gaia in a moment. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What are some different business models that might work? I mean, you're you're in America is uh, very much a market driven society. It, it's it's interesting how, you know, in, in the states they seem to have this idea that the market will always decide it, and any intervention is like, how dare the government get into my life? That's a it's a it's a wild thing that they have over there, but. Because it, it, it bases itself on the idea that we have a choice, but what you're describing is we don't have a choice here. So what kind of interventions could a could a government do that might be effective, yet still allow these innovations and things that improve our lives to happen? I think that when there'll be enough pressure on these addictive designs and on the business model through antitrust, for example, you know, right now Meta owns Facebook, owns Instagram, and owns WhatsApp. If 
antitrust action succeeds and they're broken up and there's more competition, I think we'll see more innovation. And I can suggest other modes, other uh, models like subscription or pay-as-you-go. Imagine if you have to pay for every minute you spend on uh, social networks. You might think twice, especially kids. Uh, but I think that the pressure to change could bring up new models that neither you nor I can imagine through the free market. And that's my hope. But the fact right now, this has been so dominant that we can't even imagine a different world. See, the idea, see, the, as soon as you said pay as you go, the idea of, you know, okay, well, Minecraft is a cent a minute. All right. Off you go. It's cheap. Off you go. And next thing I'm thinking, you know, and you you re, 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 re-up it by getting a card at the supermarket that you scan, right? You know, the next thing is like you've got this addicted kid screaming at the parent, not for the lollies in the or the candy in the supermarket aisle, but for the Minecraft discount card so the kid can have more time. Well, my hope would be that if Minecraft is pay-as-you-go and they make money a different way, they would take away some of the addictive features on the game. Right. So the kid will not be as addicted. And, right. and Minecraft has been voted to be the most addictive game of all times, yet Soul is an educational game. Ah, but we're teaching our children. Come on, everything's fine. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, is, it is dystopian and terrifying, and it sounds like we are, we're, we're coming close to a point where you know, there's there's going to be a moment where we're going to make a call. I hope it doesn't get too bad. But you said before earlier in our conversation that the idea that we can do something about it isn't the thing that we should hold on to. But surely there's something that you talk about detoxes in the book. You talk about a digital detox in the book. What can we do ourselves to protect ourselves? Like what's the us putting a seatbelt on when we get in the car? So I, I think that two things. I think we're, we are in transition, transition stage. I think there's more awareness, there's more activity legally of class actions and political activity than ever before. But I do think it will take time, and that's what all the studies into the past showed. Lots of pressure in different ways. Uh, I think people can do things at home. They should try to avoid, first of all, having, you know, their phones in the dinner table or taking the kids with an iPad to a restaurant or even adopting new norms. I went on a vacation and I saw kids in the pool, two girls. The mom gave them plastic pouches to put the iPhone in there when they're in the pool so they could be in the iPhone in the pool. That's the kind of direction you may not want to go in. So that is one thing. But I do think it's not just for lawyers. I think we are all... Adults are also professionals. If you're an adult and you are in a startup business, maybe you want to think about a model that does not operate on time as a resource. If you're a designer, maybe you can think, is the feature I'm designing designed just to get people going back to the platform and nothing else? There's no content, there's nothing. Do I want to design this? If you're a restaurant owner, through COVID, there lots of restaurants here you started using QR codes. Mm-hmm. Many did not go back to menus. So do you want to have a QR code so people put the phones on the table the moment they start dinner? Or do you want to put a menu? So I think we can change spaces and especially I think we can change schools, which is the most important place. This is yeah, you you do write about this is the idea of changing a physical space. Now this m- may seem 
like a wild concept to people. Like how can you change a room? How can you change a room so people don't use their phone so much? What is what are some ways that we can do that perhaps in our own homes, in our workplaces and in a public place? So I, I think I'll give some examples. For, first of all, you may remember that bars used to be full of smoke, right? We, <laughs> Damn. We could not, in the Disgusting. 1980s, we could not imagine that there will be no s- cigarettes in a bar. Right now, we cannot imagine a bar without every person having their phone right next to them. Yeah. So that so things can change. I want to start from that. But there are ways to design for overuse. Many airports have iPads on all tables. So you have, in all New York airports, have four iPads on every table. You could not do any, you could not even put your book, you have no space. So that's a way to design for overuse. You can design differently. You can make decisions differently. You can incentivize people, you know, I've seen restaurants putting signs, you know, uh, put your phone away and dessert is on us. And classrooms are very important because that's, if if kids are on screen all day in school, it filters into the home. If schoolwork is on screen, so is homework. There's no way you can tell what the kid is doing at that point. And also the school is legitimizing things like Minecraft or, TikTok where teachers are not posting lectures. I have mates who tried, they tried really hard, Gaia, to have their kids not have screens for a long time. I remember one of one of my mates, his son was 10, said he doesn't even know what an iPad looks like. And that was pretty good to get him to 10. But then they moved to a bigger city and now it's bring your own device. And now suddenly this kid's on there and they parents justified it. it's like well the kid kind of needs to know how to use it because right. that's where the world is going where's where's the balance there yeah i think that's exactly the conflict i think on the one hand we feel like our kids need technology because that's otherwise they won't be able to function in the world hmm. i do think there's a balance though i think um right now in many many countries all over the world the, the policy is, is maximizing technology in the classroom so nothing is examined is it better than a teacher or not. The studies have actually not shown. To the contrary, they've shown that live teachers are better teachers than screens. So instead of that, if you just switch it around saying, we can use screens in the classroom if they're doing something helpful. If they're learning how to code, for example. And if kids are maybe willing to practice, if you give them some quizzes, but you have to check it. At the same time, limit how much time kids can spend according to age on on the screens in school there are lots of things that that can be done which are not done the terrible thing about all this guy is it's the it's the thing i can't remember the name of the chemical that mac mcdonald's put on their fries but it's that thing that you eat one and go and then you can't stop it's this idea of like what do you mean go to dinner without taking an iPad in case my kid starts to lose their shit? What do you mean have a teacher try to look after an overcrowded classroom without being able to, you know, at least once a day say, okay, kids, get on that 20 minutes. (sighs) You know, as an adult, you have that moment of like, I can't not have that. That's the only time I get to stack the dishwasher, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I agree. It's very hard. I think the, the only thing is when the kids are smaller, in a way, it's easier because you're still making the decisions for them. Yeah. Once they get to middle school, unless things change, you can't make any decisions. So your only way to instill norms is when the kids are smaller and you're the decision maker. Speaking of giving children iPads, taking an iPad off a child is a whole other whole other ball game. When you write about you know, digital detox, the um uh the the come down, the the cold turkey, it's got so many similarities to, you know, drug addiction. Right, but if the iPad did not have games for kids which are based on intermittent reward, if things were more predictable. If the design was different, if there was an end to a game, now there's never an end to a game, it will not be so hard to take the iPad. We cannot imagine it, but it doesn't have to be designed this way. Yeah. Do you you recommend spending time away from your phone? Like how, like the idea of not touching my phone for a day is a lot to, for me to even think about because of how much I use it and how I use it in my life. Um, is this something that you think we should do as an end user? Okay, I'll be honest. I could not do that. Maybe that's why I'm effective writing about this because I, I really feel the pain of this. I could not do this. I sometimes leave the house and I forget my phone and I get very anxious and I need to go back to get it. So I, I think I, I cannot propose things. Some people maybe have an easier time if they can do it, that would be great, but it's not easy for a lot of people. And once you have parents and you have children, it's like society expects you to have a phone because they expect to reach you. Yeah, it's this, this a multifaceted thing, isn't it? Because in, in, in some ways, it's, uh, oh, no, I've got to get them. I've got to get them a phone because I have to be, for safety, I've got to get them a phone. There's, you know, bad people out there. But when you think about it, like, yes, there are bad people out there, but it's the infinitesimally small chances that your kid will actually get snatched off the street it's it doesn't equal the reality uh, and that's tough for people to accept you know they want to be able to feel they're doing something by giving a kid a phone oh kid's safer great but what have you done you put the phone in their hand and now they're speaking to someone in a chat room and what do you know <laughs> you know of course but also everything has changed around. You gave the kids the phone, the public phones have disappeared. Now it's really a problem because yeah. they cannot find a phone if they need one. Yeah. It's 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 so, so, so tough to deal with. What what are our what are our steps from here as as parents, as as people who maybe aren't parents and people who are listening to this? People are listening to this on a phone right now. So I couldn't be without my podcast. I love my podcast. I know everything listening to a podcast. What's what's some steps that we can take uh, today to help free us at, and, and be at least aware of? I I think if you have small kids, I think you should think very carefully about the norms you're instilling in them. I think that if you have kids who are in middle school, you can talk to them about it. Nobody likes being manipulated. Maybe remind them how they felt during the pandemic when they sat at home in front of the screens, how their body felt, how they felt mentally. And I think as a person who is part of our society, think what can you do collectively in your professional capacity? I think that's the most effective place, whether you run a business or, as I said, you're a designer, whatever you do that you can change things. And yes, and there are many parents that are doing things legally. They're advocating for bills. There's joining class actions. That's if you want to be a legal activist. 
I'm not trying to say that this is a movement for lawyers alone. I think there are lots of things that people can do and also influencing the schools the kids attend to. Uh, many schools can be influenced on an individual level or in district level, and that would make a big difference because if you convince the school not to have computers or have to have them less or not assign homework on computers for a few more years, you've gained years. In the meantime, things, I believe, are going to change here. We talked about screen time being the filter on the cigarette. It's like, look, it's a filter now. It's like, yeah, you've got screen time. We're all safe. We take your health seriously. Uh, what are some things, though, that we can adjust on our own phones to try to protect us or try to protect our kids? Okay, I'll say this but with a grain of salt because I think that, yes, I've seen people find things that are effective for themselves. For example, when I tried to write, I put the timer on my phone for 20 minutes, I close all my windows, and until it rings, I don't check my email. Then I check everything, and then I restart this again. I know some people who were, had a problem with a specific app. So they deleted that app and they managed to go for a few months without it, which was good. But the main thing I want to say, if it doesn't work out, don't sit there and blame yourself or blame your kid. If your parental controls don't work out, don't be surprised because they're not really meant to succeed. And just think about what else you can do. Don't put um, all your efforts into this self-control and home battles. Who are some people that we can look to that are, you know, leaders in this space? The one name that comes to my mind is Tristan Harris as someone who's a leader in this space, someone we can look to as far as some, you know, which directions we can start pressuring, uh, you know, bigger corporations and governments. So Tristan Harris is, I think there is not, that's the interesting thing. That's really why I wrote the book. I think nobody's really looked at the whole picture of what's happening legally. And that's why I tried to draw a picture to show that there's lots of efforts. There are lots of groups in different countries, in Europe as well. Lots of things were done, but there's not one, there's not just one big organization that does it. So... There are different organizations, some working to protect kids in one country, pressuring the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. But I, I think that's what we need to start thinking about, to sort of build more bodies that will collaborate and look at it as a movement and not as individual off efforts of one congressman here, one bill in the U.K., there has to be more um, in the same way if you think about the always the climate is but actually it's a bit like the climate uh, change movement I think yeah. it's, it's affecting the same generation mm. and it is a global issue and I think that movement is much more organized and in a way this is something you know t technology information is has no borders if you could say, you know, what is the thing we're fighting against? I have a T-shirt that says Australian Parents for Climate Action. Boom. Does what it says on the box. What is the distilled thing that we are fighting against here, Gaia? We are fighting to regain control of our time, to make decision of how much time we spend on the screen, to have it be our decision, not something dictated to us. Thank you for writing this book, honestly, because to, to read it was, uh, it gave me the feeling, oh, I'm not alone. It's not just me. And, oh, I'm, I'm not a weak-wheeled piece of shit. Like, I've got to stop thinking that. It isn't, I actually cannot 
my brain processing power cannot match the thing that's in my phone. No matter how much I think I can, I can't. And <sighs> that relieved me a little bit. <laughs> so thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Gaia Bernstein. Sorry, that was Professor Gaia Bernstein. What an incredible chat. A lot of things to take away from that. The book is called Unwired. It's well worth the read if you want to explore more. I hope that conversation has kind of nudged you a little more to take some action around your phone usage. I'm in the trenches with you, I promise. There's no way I'm above this. Yeah. I say yes to people like that coming on my show because I do need to get reminded by, like, you know, professors that the way I'm using my phone is, you know, bad. God damn. Thank you very much to Andy Ma that edited this episode, to Bree Steele for the research, Toe Hider who made the music, and Rachel Barrett who uh, organised everything as the EP. I'll leave you be. I'll see you back here on Wednesday. Thanks for flinging a vote my way. If you did, if not, you'll find the link in the show notes. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.